is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in L.A. Looks like Europe is in the thick of a winter surge before winter officially begins. Cases on the rise, governments reacting with mandates, lockdowns, those are drawing protests. Would it help if the U.S. had a centralized vaccine database to track all the numbers? We'll talk to a medical company CEO who says yes. Supply chain issues, we've talked about them a lot. We're talking about them again because they're impacting food banks just before the holidays. Speaking of the big holidays, we'll have some tips on preparing a Thanksgiving meal since many of you probably skipped it last year. We start, though, with Europe and the latest COVID wave. Dr. Martin McKee, professor of European public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Doctor, what is going on over there? Well, in terms of the epidemiological situation, what we're seeing is a very varied picture across Europe. Some countries are still managing to contain the virus reasonably well. Spain, Portugal, France, to some extent, although there are a few problems there, but others have seen a very rapid rise. And it's the ones in Central Europe, Austria, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and to some extent, Germany as well, where we're seeing problems. In terms of the political aspect, the the vaccine issue, I think what we're seeing now is that there is a growing, um, I think, frustration with by many people who are saying, well, actually, those people who are not being vaccinated are contributing to these recurring waves of COVID. And there's a sense that maybe we need to do things that we wouldn't have done in the past, like vaccine mandates. And we've got one coming up in Austria. And it looks like there may be one in Germany, certainly the new government that's just agreed, the coalition that's just been agreed today. Olaf Scholz, um, the new chancellor, has hinted that there may be some support for something there. If people are pushing back on more restrictions and lockdowns, though, they're probably going to push back on the mandates. Or is it the kind of thing like in France where, you know what, if you want to go do anything, you're going to have to have this. So, you know what, Uh, either eat at home or eat at the restaurant, but get your vaccine. Sorry. Yeah, I think we need to be careful because there certainly have been a number of demonstrations in Austria. There was some trouble in in Belgium and in the Netherlands. But the polling data is showing more and more people in support of these measures. So uh, there certainly is a challenge. But the vaccine passes are working really well. I've seen them working in Austria and in France myself and uh, well, in Austria and France particularly. And you just show it in your phone when you go to a restaurant, you go into a large shop and everybody does it. It's easy. You just flick on your phone and uh, they seem to be very widely accepted and they are having an impact. People are being increasingly vaccinated. There was a huge rise in the number of people that most people in one day ever uh, in Austria were vaccinated at the end of last week. So I think there's more and more uh, political willingness to do things that we wouldn't have done in the past, partly because politicians are seeing that the public are supporting this, even if there is a very vociferous minority that is objecting to it. You know, when things uh, unfold in in Europe, for example, anywhere overseas for that matter, Americans do tend to be many anyway, sort of smug about it. I remember in the early stages of the pandemic when there were cases, you know, cropping up in Europe and people in this country were going, well, it's not going to happen here. Well, so much for that. Um, Are there lessons to be learned from what is now unfolding, both from a medical point of view and a political point of view, that we here in the U.S. might uh, really kind of take heed to learn quickly? Well, I think also it's 
always important in these times to remember that the European Union is 27 countries. You are 50 states in the District of Columbia. And there are huge differences in all of those. So it's very, I th- I was, I'm rather reluctant to talk, to talk about Europe or the United States because there's a, an, a, a really broad range of experiences. But that said, I think we can go right back to basics, which is to say that this is a virus which is transmitting through the air. It gets into the air. And if you're in a crowded indoor space, then you are at risk of being infected. But we have vaccines that are very effective. However, um, for the vaccines to work really well, you need to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And we're also seeing some evidence of waning immunity in older people. So the boosters really do seem to be making a difference. In Israel, we have pretty good evidence of that now. And we're beginning to see that in the United Kingdom, where we've been boosting for some time as well. So I think those are the fundamental medical messages. I think in terms of the politics, what we are seeing is that ideas that would not have been considered as part of the sort of norm normal responses are now being considered, particularly around vaccine passports, vaccine mandates, because of this recognition that essentially you cannot control a pandemic if everybody just looks out for themselves. We are all in this together. Things that I do impact on you. If I wear it, well, I do wear a face mask, but I'm not wearing a face mask primarily to protect myself. I'm wearing it to protect other people. And actually, it's a symbol of solidarity. Now, of course, that is very different between some parts of the United States and most of Europe, uh, solidarity is very strong, social solidarity. I fully recognize, you know, the, reading the work of political scientists in the US, there are big differences between different between, say, Minnesota and Alabama. Um, but uh, that said, I think the, the sense of solidarity is becoming stronger. And that means that the governments and politicians are willing to say everybody has to play their part. Dr. Martin McKee, Professor of European Public Health, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The U.S. lacks a central vaccine database. The federal government has to gather data from health agencies all across the country to figure out how many people have been vaccinated. Would a central database help? KYW's Matt Leon talks to Sigal Atzman, founder and CEO of Medics. It's a global medical management company. She wrote an op-ed recently about the need for this kind of system. There's no rule. There's no discipline. There's no alignment as to what has to be done. And, and I, don't, I don't think we need to force people to get vaccinated. We just need to get alignment about how we manage this data and this process. And that means that everyone gets vaccinated by this. We have clearly people get vaccinated by a certain number of vaccines that have been approved. Whoever is vaccinated in his own state, it should be digitally enlisted that he has been vaccinated on the database that is managed at state level, but in an anonymized manner, that information should maybe once a month or once a quarter be drawn up to the national level so that uh, specialists and the CDC and, and, and other institutions without names completely anonymously could analyze that data. You know, do you want to have examples of what's going on in other countries, Matt? Sure. Just as an example. So, if you take Israel, for example, a very small country, you cannot compare it to, to America, but in a minute we'll speak about India. So Israel has been actually the clinical trial country of the whole world. It has vaccinated the population first, having an agreement with the U.S. and with, with Pfizer. So America understood Israel as a country 
has a social security system that is very strong, has been fully digitalized 20 years ago. And if everyone would get vaccinated in Israel, which happened at very high rates, America could draw digital data, anonymized, analyze it, and decide whether the vaccine is good for American people or not. Think of that. America is drawing upon data from another country to decide whether the vaccine is good for Americans, yes or no. To me, that is shocking. So I appreciate there is a country who contributed to the world management of the pandemic, right? But it should be that America would have access to its own data, massive data, right? But it's not, it doesn't have it because it's not digital. So, so Israel not only has a digital system who has been vaccinated or not, when you leave the clinic after having been vaccinated, after 20 minutes, you get a text message asking you, how are you feeling? And three other questions. And you answer if you have side effects, if you have anything, and if you need medical support. And then two days later, again, and they're asking you to report. If you're fine, you're fine. They, and they analyze the outcomes of the vaccine. And then for your booster, before you even wake up in the morning on, on, on the day you should get your second vaccine and the booster, you actually get a text message reminding you, asking you if you want them to book, a, if you want the system, the app to book the appointment with you for you. It tells you where you can go to have it. And if you go and have it, it will be completely digital. No efforts involved. It will support you in your side effects. And it's all going into a database that is shared with no one, but is just useful for scientific purposes and for the management of a pandemic. Now, I just want to draw your attention uh, to the fact that Israel has been giving, is the country who has provided the most boosters uh, to its population. But before having these boosters, the world could learn that about between six to eight months after the second vaccine, we had a huge new wave. Israel had a huge new wave of, of contaminations and people got COVID sick again. And now you see that in Europe. We're about six months down the line after Europe vaccinated its populations with the second uh, vaccine. And we have huge, look at what's going on in Germany, over 60,000 uh, new cases a day, right? Different countries are going into lockdown again. Now America is going down that route because it just started those boosters. And we have an America today that is so polarized and, and there's no data under control. We don't really know all the way what's happening. And here we are looking into the future. And I know that it's not going to be great because we're just kicking off those boosters and we don't have a database. So we don't know what we're dealing with. And that to me is tough. Talk to me a little bit about if you were given the green light, we like this idea, implement it. Give me a quick synopsis of, of how you think a functional high level how it would work. So at federal level, national level, there needs to be a budget and there needs to be a decision on what infrastructure that database, how it should look like, what information, and that should be very minimal. Name, ID number, date of birth, vaccination, yes or no, first vaccine, second vaccine, booster. That's it, okay? I'm starting with something that's really super basic. No additional information, no background on your medical issues, nothing, just vaccination. And that would be that, that infrastructure that would be decided upon 
and developed at national federal level would be then implemented at state level without so even before data is is, in, is added into that system every state would receive that infrastructure that would be supported by the different entities in America that are responsible for ensuring privacy cyber attacks etc cetera, etc cetera. so there will be a whole layer of protection around that database and infrastructure it would be a collaboration between the different entities it would be developed at national federal level budgeted at federal level and then implemented and sent to the states the state the states would implement it at state level and they would be responsible for collecting and inserting the data in the database that state level information with the names the id numbers and the date of birth and the vaccination information would not be shared with anyone right it's like your criminal records for example anyone's criminal records are not shared at national federal level they're at state level if a policeman wants to have access to information about the person in another state he needs to make a demand and he needs to have a very good reason for that he cannot just walks into a computer and get access to any any information about anyone in another state correct so the information would be segregated completely separate and managed at the state level however anonymized information aggregate anonymized information would be collected and brought up to the national level just for the purpose of scientific advances analytics and decision making support so we need data that is american not relying on other data from other countries to make decisions what is good and what is right or bad for american people and we want to protect that data in such a way that bioterrorism or cyber attacks would not have an option food banks are struggling with supply chain issues that have plagued many other industries the timing couldn't be worse with the holidays coming up. So how are they coping? How are they going to be able to help people like before? Michael Flood, president of the LA Regional Food Bank. Michael, how are you guys doing over there? We're hanging in there. Uh, as you described, certainly there, there's some issues uh, externally that are putting a lot of challenges uh, on food issues. I, I'd say the inflation issue you mentioned is really impacting you know families and individuals um, you know, it's affecting all of us who go to the store and are making these purchases and seeing uh, prices for meat, dairy, eggs, uh, a lot of different items go up. And especially for those that have uh, just a limited monthly income, that just means less food for them. For those going to food banks, what might they notice different this year, if anything? Well, you know, we're still in pandemic response mode, you know, 20, 21 months um, after the pandemic hit. I mean, our, our volume of food is still more than double what it was prior to the pandemic. Um, so people are coming, they, they are seeing uh, the food supplies. You know, most of our food is donated and donated locally or in California, especially for produce. So that, that doesn't really be, is, is not impacted by the supply chain issues. Um, so, uh, but again, the demand is still very high and uh, we're doing what we can to bring as much food in as possible. Cause a lot of our partner agencies like to do something special for the Thanksgiving holiday and for the upcoming December holidays. So there's a push to get uh, additional food out there uh, for those that are just struggling to feed themselves. Yeah, are you having to stretch like not as much can go out to each person or each group as, as you normally would like to give? 
Yeah, there's always some kind of rationing to the agencies that goes on. Um, you know, we, we do purchase about 15% of our supply. Turkeys is a good example. We don't see a lot of turkeys donated. So this year we purchased more than 20,000 turkeys for our partner agencies and for some of our direct distributions. And um, yeah, those have to be parceled out. Uh, certainly the demand is higher than that. And that's a good example where, you know, prices are higher, there's some uh, supply issues uh, and the overall demand out there, you know, is higher. You know, the local unemployment rate, we're still at 9.4% here in LA County. So we're higher than the state average, higher than the federal average. Um, so we, we're still seeing a pretty strong demand for food assistance. Now, of course, we're getting closer to Christmas, too. How does the food situation look for that? About the same as, as this uh, donated food. A lot of our donations come from retailers, manufacturers, produce companies. We also get food through USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's coming in pretty strong. It's more around food purchases that uh, there's some challenges there uh, just because of what uh, we're all hearing and reading about regarding inflation and some difficulty accessing uh, some food items. So what can people do to help you out? Obviously, if you have the means, now is probably a, a good time to try and donate either food or, or something monetary, because if the 15% is costing you more than it ever has before, you're going to eventually notice that. We are. We're, we're feeling it. And uh, that's where we really encourage people to uh, to donate, to volunteer. They can go to LAfoodbank.org. They can also find their local agency to provide support directly to them, food pantries and agencies doing great work throughout Los Angeles County um, and volunteering. So there are lots of ways for people to help. And uh, we do get a lot of support from the community and are very appreciative of that. I was going to say, is there anything uh, other than, of course, the availability now of vaccines, but from the food bank perspective, that's better this year than last year? Yes. I mean, the you know, a year ago, we all remember it was before vaccines. So we're all, we, you know, we we're running these distributions, drive-through distributions and the like, but there was so much uncertainty last year among our staff and volunteers, you know, how contagious COVID-19 is and the like. So having the vaccine out there, um, it, it does really, uh, it's a huge improvement just from keeping people safer and just having kind of more kind of a known situation regarding risks that are out there. So that that absolutely is a huge improvement. Michael Flood, president of the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. Coming up after a short break, Thanksgiving dinners are back this year, and we have some tips to prepare them in case you're rusty. Many people who usually host Thanksgiving dinners skip them last year, but now that people can get vaccinated... Those dinners are back on. Yeah, but maybe you're thinking, okay, I forgot how to do some of this. We're talking to Edwin Rowe, executive chef of the Riviera Country Club in L.A. Edwin, a lot of people say they, they like all the Thanksgiving food. They like the stuffing. They like the cranberries, but not so much the actual turkey, right? Uh, if it's prepared right, it can be actually real delicious. Um, the key is to brine the turkey a uh, minimum of 24 hours, depending on the size. Um, typically, birds are around 12 to anywhere between 12 to 24 pounds. Um, usually 24 hours on a brine is perfect. The key to the perfect brine is, uh, this is a secret, it's one cup of salt for every gallon of water of brine. The key is you want to dissolve the salt um, into the water 
So therefore, you need you might need to heat it up and then cool it down real quick before you actually submerge the turkey into the brine. Once into the brine, 24 hours is perfect. And we do that to make sure that it's actually moist and tastes good and isn't just dry turkey that Charles says everybody hates. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the key is to, to get the, uh, the salt to permeate into the actual cavity of the bird. And it also helps hydrate the bird so it's nice and juicy once you do roast it. So let's talk now about the thing that I still maintain, <laughs> with all due respect to turkeys, what most people really like in Thanksgiving dinner is, is all the trimmings, right? So are there certain things that are kind of like old-fashioned, out of style, and, and new stuff has now replaced it? Or do the old fundamentals still uh, win out, and what are they? Well, you can always approach things in a new way. Um, traditional has always proven to be best, especially here at the Riviera Country Club with our members. Um, they, they love the traditional sourdough stuffing with sage, parsley, um, lots of onions and celery, and a really nice chicken stock to really hydrate that stuffing before you bake it off. What else you got? What, what do you put on your table? Um, traditionally, we always have um, stuffing. We always have yams. Um, this year, we're going to actually roast the yams and serve them with some candied pecans. Um, we also always have a green bean casserole, which is fairly easy. Um, it's basically steamed green beans with uh, a little bit of bechamel and cheese, as well as some mu fresh mushrooms on top. Um, mac and cheese is always a big hit with the members. Uh, we traditionally use white cheddar um, and a little bit of fontina just to give it a little bit of sharpness to it. Um, and, you know, Brussels sprouts, uh, we also do, we, we do glazed winter vegetables. So uh, we'll get like parsnips, rutabaga, uh, we'll, 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 we'll roast those off and then we'll glaze them with a nice honey and thyme mixture. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, there's so many different uh, applications that you can go with. Um, but the best advice I can give to you is keep it simple. That's the best way. The more you try to complicate things, it typically ends up as a disaster. Yeah, Something I, catches on fire. Yeah. I was going to yeah. ask you, Chef. I mean, there are people who get really tense. I mean, they, they start getting all upset and wound up like a month before Thanksgiving because they fear having to make Thanksgiving dinner. So how do you kind of calm them down? I kind of have the same anxiety. You know, I cook for a lot of people for Thanksgiving. Um, but the best way to really approach it is, first off, to have a plan. Um, set, out, set, set, set your day up. Um, have some time to start things early. The more time you have, uh, the less of a rush it is. And, you know, you really want to make sure that turkey is cooked through all the way. Um, for me, the key is low and slow. Uh, the, more, the higher the heat, the drier it tends to be. And if you're going to brine 24 hours, well, you get her to start soon. I'm, I mean, not gonna, I'm not going to brine anything. <laughs> you have to plan I'm that ahead. I'm he's not brining anything. He's, yeah. he's ordering it in. Um, give me a few, oh, no, I've run out of this ingredient that I thought I had, but now I don't. Give me some, like, quick swaps that I can, you know, substitute in an easy way. Um, like, oh, no, I ran out of butter. What do I do? Butter can always be substituted with um, any sort of fat, um, whether it be, um, you know, my wife is actually allergic to, to dairy, so we use a cashew uh, cheese at home, which tends to work really well with um, oat milk or anything that's, you know, vegan. 
Um, there's always options. You just have to really look into your pantry as well as kind of what you have in the dry goods area, whether it's potatoes, um, bread. Um, there's all sorts of options. You can even do pasta real quick and hmm. just toss that with butter, um, whether it's a penne pasta or macaroni pasta. And, you know, everybody has a little bit of Parmesan cheese in the fridge. You can always sprinkle a little bit of that and black pepper and you know, there you go. It's an instant 10-minute meal, ten meal. Let me ask you about something that some people, when they hear this, are going to salivate, and some people <laughs> are going to go, yuck. But I read, Chef, that in the, I guess, the last century in the U.S., and even in some parts of the country now, that it isn't turkey that's the main course for Thanksgiving dinner, but, wait for this, raccoon. Wow. <laughs> how do you cook, I've heard of, how, how do you cook a raccoon? It's not on the menu at the uh, country club. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds very vague. Uh, I've you know I've heard of goose or you know maybe duck or something a little bit out of the ordinary, but wow, raccoon! Um, I, I personally I would not touch it. Uh, I wouldn't even attempt to cook it. How would you cook uh, the raccoon? I wouldn't is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd imagine you'd have to skin it, get all the the skin off, and you know maybe you might want to smoke it and just to to add some flavor to it and heavily spice just to get rid of the yumminess. <laughs> I'm guessing. So, so the, the um, bottom, the yeah, bottom, that's a question I've never been asked. Yeah, the, <laughs> the bottom line, chef, is 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 stick with the turkey, stay away from the raccoon. Exactly. Okay. Keep it simple. All right. Yeah. Don't get too uh, too fancy with your raccoon dinner over there. Uh, Edwin Rowe, executive chef of the Riviera you know. Country Club in Los Angeles. Another thing the pandemic is apparently contributing to is keeping people from moving. Data from the Census Bureau shows just 8.4% of Americans live in a different house than they lived in a year ago. Now, that's the lowest rate of movement that the Bureau has recorded at any time since 1948. That share means that about 27.1 million people moved homes in the last year. The percentage has been dropping steadily over the decades, but some demographic experts say the pandemic put the brakes on many people's plans to move. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.